Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Adrian Hemond of Grassroots Midwest projects that U.S. Rep. Alyssa Slotkin will be the next U.S. Senator from Michigan. What about Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, Kill Harper, whoever the Republicans put up? We'll talk about this and legislative subjects with him. House Judiciary Committee Chair Kelly Breen was a Michigan State University student during the Columbine High School shooting of 1999. Hear how she's reacting to the violence at her alma mater and what legislation she expects to come out of her committee to address it. And why didn't Ohio, Indiana, or any other neighboring state get hit with hundreds of thousands of power outages from last week's ice storm? Dan Scripps, chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission, tackled that topic. Now, here's MERS News Editor Kyle Malin and MERS Reporter Samantha Schreiber. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. Well, the week is already starting off extremely eventful as folks are already starting to make intentions known for the 2024 election cycle, which is way more than a year and a half away. Alyssa Slotkin announcing that she's going to be running for the U.S. Senate. We've got Garland Gilchrist saying he's not going to be running for the U.S. Senate. Joining us to talk about that is our own Samantha Schreiber and also Adrian Hemond, CEO of Grassroots Midwest. Uh, Adrian, we see that uh, Alyssa Slotkin is probably going to be the front runner at this point. Is that how you see it here on the Democratic side? Yeah, I mean, barring something cataclysmic, she's going to be the next senator from the state of Michigan. Um, you know, the the field has essentially been cleared for her on the Democratic side, and Republicans don't have a top-tier candidate, which they really need if they want to be even competitive in this race. Uh, Republicans have a wretched track record in statewide federal elections in Michigan. The last one to win a statewide federal election in Michigan prior to Donald Trump in 2016 was Spence Abraham. That was a long time ago. Um, and so Republicans need a top quality contender and they don't have one. Most of the folks that you would classify as potential top quality Republican contenders have already taken a powder. Now, Samantha, we still have Jocelyn Benson out there as current secretary of state. The odds of her getting into the race are what would you say? I have I, I have mixed anticipation for this. I definitely would say when I saw both Senator McMorrow and Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist say that, hey, we're not running for U.S. Senate in the same weekend, I already had a feeling like, okay, there's going to be a big announcement coming, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be from Alyssa Slotkin. I think covering a Jocelyn Benson Slotkin primary would be so exciting, but I'm a little bit curious to see if that is something that we're actually going to see come to fruition. So I'm going to be very bold and give it a 50-50 chance. Well, you know, the fact that Benson hasn't made her intentions known yet, I think has to say something. Uh, she would appeal, Adrian, to, uh, I, I suppose, a left-leaning or progressive lane that currently isn't being occupied by anybody. I know that that's the theory of a Jocelyn Benson candidacy. I'm a little skeptical that that appeal actually exists um, for the primary electorate. It's certainly never been tested, right? She was nominated both times in a partisan convention. She's never actually had to go and appeal to Democratic primary voters. But that's certainly the theory of the folks who are encouraging her to do this. Open question. Do you think she ends up doing it? No. Because? Slotkin's a fundraising juggernaut. She actually has a national fundraising network already from having run and won in competitive congressional races multiple times. Um, Jocelyn Benson's actually never been in a competitive election um, that she's won. 
these were both blowouts um, that she was involved in. Um, she doesn't have the national fundraising profile that Slotkin does. She doesn't have the track record of winning elections that Slotkin does um, in competitive environments. Um, I think you're going to see um, support consolidate behind Slotkin fairly quickly. I think the other thing, and you know, you hate to put too much stock in this, is the relationship between the Michigan's current junior senator, who is chairman of the DSCC, um, and Alyssa Slotkin. Um, Slotkin and Peters get on very, very well. Certainly Peters um, in his role is not gonna put a thumb on the scale publicly, but I think it's pretty clear that he'd prefer to have Alyssa Slotkin as his candidate. She's objectively a better general election candidate. I feel like everyone would wanna be a fly on the wall when it comes to how have the conversations been going between Alyssa Slotkin and Debbie Stabenow, the current US Senator. Uh, obviously, I'm pretty sure that we don't anticipate her making an endorsement during the primary election season. However, I'm kind of curious if there's a little bit of backing going on behind the scenes because Slotkin represents Stabenow's personal home district in Michigan. They are always at events together. You know, I feel like it's pretty clear that they have a very close-knit relationship. I'm curious about how those conversations are going on behind the curtain. The, the reason why I keep Benson's name out there, though, is she does have some connection with some deep-pocketed donors nationally. And while she may not have the network that you're talking about, Adrian, she does have connections with folks outside of Michigan who would be able to bring dollars in, and that's obviously what you need for this kind of race. Uh, I wanted to talk about Garland Gilchrist for just a second, Lieutenant Governor Samantha, because he ended up, like you said, not getting into this race. I think his candidacy would have a couple problems. Uh, first of all, if he were to win, or let's just say, uh, did you know that there is no legal mechanism to replace an open lieutenant governor position in Michigan? I actually did not know I that. See, I didn't, I, I didn't know that either. I just found that out thanks to our good friend Steve Liedel who, who tweeted that out there. But if you keep that in mind, then how do you break 1919 ties in the Senate without a lieutenant governor? The, question, the fact is you don't. Also, there's another candidate in this race named Hill Harper. Now, Hill Harper has apparently been uh, courted by folks in Detroit to run for this race. He has got some personal resources of, of his own. He just purchased and moved into the Charles Fisher mansion in Detroit a few years ago now and uh, is seen as somebody who's got the resources and the face and name recognition to be successful in this race. And he does have some support in the metro Detroit area. Now, he's not from Detroit originally, but he has been in the movie and television industry for nearly 30 years. So folks are familiar with him, and uh, apparently he's a very charming personality. And for what it's worth, in 2004, he was ranked the sexiest man alive by People Magazine. So he's got that going for him. Oh, and not only in 2004, but 2014 as well. So he's got that going for him, too. So apparently he is going to get in no matter what. And so for Garland Gilchrist to try and run out of Detroit against him, I think was not going to probably work out for either one of them. And so Garland Gilchrist obviously takes a step back from that seat. You know, I feel like the actor has definitely made his intentions very, very clear that he strongly sees himself making an official announcement to run for this U.S. Senate seat. 
Uh, he obviously had a very strong presence at the Democratic Spring State uh, Convention. As for Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist right now, I think having him in the state Senate is really important for Governor Whitmer. Uh, obviously, Democrats do have a state Senate majority. However, however it's only a 20 seat out of 38 majority. Uh, they need to have Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist there in case, especially when it comes to these big policy proposals that the governor wants to see sent to her desk. Any thoughts on Hill Harper as a U.S. Senate candidate, Adrian? I didn't know who that person was until his name started being bandied about as a potential candidate for U.S. Senate. Color me extremely skeptical. If you're a watcher of this old TV show CSI New York, you would have seen him on there. He was a main character, but his more current role is Dr. Marcus Andrews on The Good Doctor. Right. What kind of ratings is that pulling? Like, what are we talking about in terms of name ID? I know that Congresswoman Slotkin has had tens of millions of dollars spent building her name ID in multiple media markets in this state, including the most expensive one. Um, I feel like that's better than, you know, whatever ratings the good doctor, if that's the right name for that show, has been pulling. Where does the Republicans go for their candidate right now? It would appear that uh, there's a lot of people banging down the door of Peter Meyer saying, hey, sorry about that primary in 2022, but we could really use you here. Yeah, so here's the problem with the folks that are trying to recruit Peter Meyer into this contest. I agree with them that of the names that haven't taken their, their names out of consideration already, he's probably their best option. The problem for them is that he's got a much better opportunity at a statewide run if he waits another two years. Right. The primary is going to be wretched no matter what. We've already seen that with his last primary um, when he was a sitting member of Congress. But if you get through the primary for uh, U.S. Senate, you know, we already talked about the really bad track record of Republicans in statewide federal elections in Michigan. The statewide track record for state based candidates in Michigan that are Republicans is quite good. Um, He could probably essentially walk into the governor's mansion when Governor Whitmer's done with it if he can win that Republican primary. That seems like a a much better uh, brass ring to grab for than, you know, a less than 50-50 shot at a U.S. Senate seat. You know, the other problem uh, Republicans have, Samantha, it would seem is that where is the apparatus here? We've got Christina Caramo now as your state party chair. And who's going to bankroll a U.S. Senate campaign? Where are you getting your cash from? No, exactly. I mean, I think money is going to be a huge obstacle for the Michigan Republican Party. I know that we've been talking since, you know, when it comes to their state campaign account, they entered 2023 with more than $2 million in debt from that account. Uh, some individuals have been discussing like, oh, are Republicans going to be able to hold their Mackinac convention this year? Maybe they might move it to Beaver Island. Who knows? <laughs> I think that was a joke, wasn't it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. If, <laughs> what were they going to do? Put on tents there in the, uh, in the campgrounds? I don't know if they can accommodate all those people on Beaver Island. If they do it on Beaver Island, I will help bankroll it. I want to see Donald Trump on Beaver Island. I'll pay good money. But here's the thing, that this convention, though, would be a time where you would show off those U.S. Senate candidates to have them parading around the island and hosting social events and mixers, et cetera. And now it's that's even in question if that's even going to happen. Um, on top of that, you think about, you know, the Michigan Republican Party and the delegates and the convention attendees and the people that want to be involved. I mean, these are individuals that would really be the, you know, the ground game for a U.S. Senate candidate, the door knockers, the organizers. And you hear it kind of seems that they really don't have much appetite for a U.S. Senate candidate who's going to do well in a general voter population. 
Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Nikki Snyder, who's on the uh, Board of Education. She's the only one to announce on the Republican side. Ruth Johnson, the state senator, former secretary of state, has has thrown her name out there as a possibility. But, Adrian, neither one of those have uh, a a strong history of uh, raising a lot of dollars. That's true. I mean, to, to Senator Johnson's credit, she at least has a track record of winning statewide elections, granted not at the top of the ticket, um, but but she has won statewide before, which I guess is a mark in her favor. Um, but yeah, the Republican Party is in a real bad way financially right now, and that promises to only get worse. It's going to be uh, because of who the new chair is and, and the current structure of the party. It's going to be very interesting to see what typical Republican funders, you know, the, the large dollar donors, decide to do with their cash this year. They still have an interest in the same sort of policies um, that they did two years ago, essentially. Right. If anything, they have more policy priorities now that Democrats are in charge of everything in Michigan. That demand is going to flow somewhere. But what does that look like and how organized is it? One of the benefits of a state political party as an organizing institution for all of that money is it helps to sort of iron out differences between um, very rich, egotistical people. That's true on the Republican side and on the Democratic side. Right. It helps to smooth some of that out. That mechanism really doesn't exist for these folks because for all of their disagreements, there's broad agreement amongst the funder class that typically would donate to the Michigan Republican Party that that's a dumb place to put money right now. Well, we're going to shift our focus now from the U.S. Senate race to the state Senate, where currently the governor's tax plan is in limbo. It uh, has an outstanding motion for immediate effect. And Samantha, you've been covering this uh, for several weeks now. But the, this tax plan needs the six Republicans to vote for it for immediate effect in order for this $180 rebate to take into action. But the, the Republicans don't want to do it because in doing so, they would stop what would, what would be an automatic rollback of the income tax. So it seems like we've got a messaging war going on. The Democrats accusing the Republicans of holding up these $180 checks, where Republicans are accusing Democrats of wanting to stop an income tax cut. Uh, it seems like a, a, a messaging battle at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Democrats don't see the value in this um, income tax rollback. Uh, you know, there's the issue of what are our financial books going to look like in the future? Is this going to provide enough relief to a low income, middle income resident? Um, and, you know, I think and also on top of that, this isn't you know, they're taking the angle of this isn't guaranteed. And we don't know if it's going to truly provide a worthwhile impact on the everyday resident immediately. So that's the position they're taking. Now, however, I think a way that this whole process could have gone by a lot faster is if Democratic leadership invited Republicans into the room and said, hey, we know that you're prioritizing this this income tax rollback. What is something that we can offer you on the table that would maybe make you take a step away or could possibly persuade you? Maybe it could have been a inclusive $500 per child tax credit. Maybe it could have been higher non-restricted deduction values for working seniors. Uh, Maybe it could, you know, maybe a little less money into the SOAR fund and maybe promoting a research and development tax credit that could impact an inclusive array of businesses. Now, however, when you talk to a Republican in the state Senate, that conversation never happened. They didn't put anything on the table that would make them feel enticed enough to give immediate effect. 
Well, and some would argue, Adrian, that there is nothing that you could have put on the table and that an income tax rollback is like asking a Republican to vote for pro-choice legislation. You know, look, I there there's always a way to negotiate, but it does involve um, negotiating. And at a certain point, if they want to get these checks out, they're going to have to negotiate. Right. The notwithstanding the resolution that's been introduced to change the Senate rules, they don't have the votes for that. Right. There's right. A, I think mean, you reported in your publication on Friday, there's at least one Democratic senator who's not voting for that. Um, so they don't have the votes to change the rules. Um, they don't have the votes to give immediate effect to this legislation. If they want immediate effect, they're going to have to find a way to negotiate um, with the Republican caucus over there. And uh, it, it sounds like, Samantha, that negotiations over this tax plan, this 4001, being kind of put on the back burner just a little bit because the governor really wants this sore money, talking about money going to corporations, for this Ford plant in Marshall uh, and she needs Republican support for that. Yeah, I know one thing that even you and me have talked about, Kyle, is that this new this new state Senate, this new legislative makeup in Lansing, they haven't really done anything together yet. They haven't really created something that you can put on the table and say, look, this is bipartisan, productive legislation that we all put our heads together and created and produced. Right. Now, you know, I think the governor who has really made economic development a huge, um, a huge theme as part of what she wants to see as her legacy as a governor, um, kind of at the forefront here. However, the biggest concern, the biggest obstacle that's going to be faced in the state Senate is now you have a Senate Republican caucus where, you know, I would make the observation at least two thirds of this caucus doesn't support that type of economic development. And that's a change from Republican caucuses in the past where you'd probably have maybe a third who don't support it. But now you're seeing a shift in the Republican Party where they they too are not supporting these big dollar sore fund type expenditures. Well, I also think with the Ford Marshall, uh, the Ford Marshall plant, I mean, I think you're already seeing people speak out in that community of not wanting to see that plant. Um, And on top of that, you also have, you know, the big question of what is Ford's relationship with CATL, the Chinese based company? Well, you know, I, I, I do think that there's there's some room for maneuver around this with the Senate Republican caucus in that, you know, that third of uh, Senate Republicans that are opposed to this type of economic development that existed um, last session and in prior sessions, those folks still exist. Um, I'm a little skeptical that the shift that you've seen in the Republican caucus is 100% an ideological or policy-based shift. I think some of it's because they're not in charge anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to be in favor of doling out incentives when you're the one getting the credit for doling out the incentives when you have power. That's not the case anymore. So I do think that that leaves some room for maneuver and negotiation, but there has to be something tangible that those um, potential Republican gets are being given here besides just the SOAR money. Um, And so again, I think this is another opportunity to negotiate here. And look, that's not... um, that's not to in any way be disparaging towards the Democratic or Republican caucuses in the Senate. They're both finding their way in their new roles, right? The Senate Republicans haven't been in the minority in 40 years, and conversely, the Democrats haven't been in the majority for 40 years. They're figuring out how to run the joint right now and and make it all work. And at a certain point, that's going to lead to the negotiating table. They need each other. As, As distasteful as that may be to both sides, they do, in fact, need each other. 
Well, that's absolutely the case. And in one subject where maybe the Democrats don't need the Republicans as much has to do with gun control legislation. I just want to end on this subject here. Uh, because there are some discussions about putting together recall attempts against Democrats who support gun control legislation. And uh, Adrian, I know you've been around the block and we've seen these types of recall threats before many, many times. What was your thought when you saw this type of response from the, uh, the gun lobby? Empty threat. And the reason it's an empty threat, they can, they can thank their... Um, their friends, um, I guess former friends now, since most of them are termed out of office, um, former Republican legislators that made it much, much more difficult to do recalls. Um, this is a really, really tall order. The time window is quite narrow, you know, so I don't think that that's a real favorable approach for these gun rights advocates to take. Also, there's the problem that in a lot of the districts um, where they might try to do these recalls, the the legislation that's being talked about is quite popular, right? Red flag laws and safe storage laws poll really, really well. Uh, that being said, I mean, Democrats would be smart to get out in front of this and start um, communicating in those districts where something like this um, might draw some antipathy from a, a section of voters so that they don't have to deal with it down the line. But I think this is an empty threat. Uh, when State Representative Larry Inman um, in 2020 had faced a recall effort following an array of federal charges against him, there's an organized effort. They had to collect 12,200 signatures, and they came out around 200 signatures short. And, and I believe the numbers that you actually, that we uh, calculated here at MERS, is that since 2019, there have been 53 separate attempts to recall a state official in Michigan, most of them on the governor and not a single one of them have made any progress so the one group that was able to make some progress but they weren't able to get the recall on the ballot was that larry inman effort in 2020 they had 13,000 signatures that they collected over 60 days but after the board of canvassers went through and and threw out some because they were invalid they only had 11,999 which was like 200 less than they needed they spent $100,000, and so if they couldn't do it, if they couldn't get a recall against somebody who was facing federal charges with $100,000 in resource, volunteers all over the place, I don't know, it's a tall order for anybody to be able to do it. And plus, you can't recall anyone until 60 day or until six months into their term. So a recall attempt couldn't even start until July. And by then, uh, you know, maybe this is old news. Well, let's transfer now the conversation to somebody who could be impacted by this uh, whole recall talk, and that's State Representative Kelly Breen, Democrat out of Novi. Joining us here in MERS World Headquarters is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Kelly Breen. Thank you so much for joining us here at MERS World Headquarters. Happy to be here. You've got a few things going on in your committees, and uh, first and foremost now is the gun control legislation. Was that always going to be first on your plate, or has that gotten put in first on your plate because of what happened at state? Oh, I've said from the beginning, school safety in general is my number one priority. And I've been talking about firearm legislation for years, since Columbine even. Uh, but the House laid out its priorities at the beginning of the term, 
And among those were also the repeal of the 1931 abortion law, as well as expanding LGBTQ rights for Elliot Larson. And those are also priorities. Now, firearm, firearm legislation, obviously, that's been near the top of my list, but it has been now propelled to the very top. And we are doing everything we can to make sure that it's done quickly, but also that it's done right. So in preparation for this, I understand you've done a, quite a bit of research. That would be true. <laughs> Tell us what you found that maybe you didn't know before. So um, what's been interesting about this journey is looking at the variety of different laws implemented across different states and finding out what is effective or ineffective about them. One of the places that we can turn to is Florida. I have been working with a gentleman named Max Schachter. He lost his son, Alex, in the Parkland shooting. And within three weeks, Florida, which is a pretty red state, managed to enact multiple pieces of legislation involving firearms. So in looking at how Florida's been able to do things and whether or not we want to set that as a floor or a ceiling as far as what Michigan wants to do has been challenging. But one thing we have discovered for sure is that states that have enacted safe storage um, or universal background checks or ERPO, otherwise known as red flag legislation, there's been a distinct difference and drop in the number of suicides by firearm. And given that over 50% of firearm deaths are suicides, when you can see probably the most conservative study showed a decrease in 7 to 14% and as high as even 20%, these laws save lives. And we can do something better here in Michigan, which right now is frankly nothing. Is it because of the maybe the culture that's being set? Because if you create these kind of laws, it puts into somebody's mind that I guess I shouldn't really have these guns hanging around that aren't in some kind of locked box or in some kind of safe because the cops aren't going to come and knock on your door and say, hey, is that gun stored? Well, that's true. But one thing that we've looked at in other states is often people will willingly hand over their firearms. And even last term, we were working with some Republicans and trying to see if we could get something done then. And I was speaking with um, a particular colleague who had mentioned a very dark space that he was in, and he recognized the wherewithal, he had the wherewithal, rather, to recognize that he shouldn't have firearms around him. And he took them to his father-in-law for safekeeping. Wow. So often people realize that they are not in a good spot. And if at that point their family members and friends can't get them to seek help and maybe make sure that they don't have the opportunity to use firearms, these laws might. And given what we've seen in places like Florida where they have taken firearms at least temporarily away from people who have threatened to shoot up a classroom, threatened to shoot up a school board, were randomly firing their guns down an alley just for fun. These are obviously instances where people maybe should not have that privilege and right to have firearms if they are going to recklessly threaten you to use them or even actually use them, such as the instance of somebody randomly shooting down an alley. Yeah, you know, one of the, I covered the Republican convention a few weeks ago, and one of the things that I heard quite a bit as a platform was that, you know, the bad guys will have guns regardless, we'll get to them illegally, and so 
that was their argument, I guess, against gun control. What do you have to say to that? What have your what has your research shown on that front? So from what we know is that the more time we can put between that impulse to pull the trigger and actually pulling the trigger, mm-hmm. the better chance we have of saving a life. That's what we know. The bad guys, I mean, we don't have to make it so easy for them. We just don't. Prosecutorial discretion is important. Judicial discretion is important. They are the people that are sitting there in the courtroom looking to decide whether or not somebody is posing an immediate threat to themselves or others. Bad guys aren't always going to get the gun. And we also have some laws that either aren't enforced correctly, they aren't written as well as they could be, or we don't have them at all. Just as an example, there's a federal law that says if you are forbidden from owning or possessing a firearm, that if you try to buy one, it's a felony. And that's at the federal level. 1.5% of those crimes are prosecuted. There's just not enough manpower there. We don't have a mirroring state law. We need to have one, so we're going to try to get to work on that. If you are forbidden from owning or possessing a gun and you try to get one, we should make that a state law, and we should make it so that local police is notified promptly so that that person can be caught and stopped. It's been since 1999 that the Columbine High School shooting happened in Colorado. And I think that was kind of the signal call that there was an issue with gun violence. Why Why are we still dealing with this? 20 years later real good question and the thing what i find significant about columbine at a personal level is i was living on beale street as a spartan senior at the time Mm -hmm. and i came home from class and my roommates were glued to the television watching a kid dangle out the window of their high school that kid was literally running for his life and he leapt out a window to save himself and we haven't done anything since. Sandy Hook, the fact that a classroom of first graders was gunned down and we haven't done anything since, I am appalled that we haven't taken any initiative to do something. The status quo is clearly not working, but also we know that mass shootings don't make up the bulk of firearm deaths. They don't. It is suicides. We also have accidents and we have homicides. And each of these particular packages that we are bringing through the legislature now will help address and mitigate all these. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, you talked about that three-week turnaround in Florida where you've been, you know, looking at and working with other legislators. What is the timeline looking like here? Quickly. I mean, we have been working on these packages for quite some time. A lot of people have been involved. There's a lot of stakeholders involved. We were looking initially at doing something in, in March, but this horrific tragedy at MSU has really hit close to home for a lot of people. So um, hearings are going to happen within the next week. We are still juggling with committees and priorities. We have to look at real actual timelines. How fast can we get bill substitutes done? Because the House bills are dropping this week. They're going to mirror the Senate bills, but still a lot of changes need to be made in order to get these bills to where they need to be. So realistically, I would say we can hope to have something in front of the governor within a few weeks. We were just talking on this podcast about a threat from uh, the gun lobby, about recalling legislators who vote for these types of bills. How concerned are you about that? I'm not. Why? Well, from a personal standpoint, I'm not worried. My district is smart. My district is educated. My district wants this. There are, of course, people who are more in the bubble. And as political insiders, I'm sure you understand that, understand this, there are people in areas who 
may face recall threats, but the fact of the matter is a vast majority of Michiganders want this to happen. There's a plethora of polling out there that shows a majority of people are tired of seeing these mass shootings. They are tired of seeing people who are in horrible domestic situations not be able to get firearms taken away from people that are threatening them. I personally experienced this when I was first elected, and it was a horrible situation. And my police chief and the police department, they did everything they could to try to help. But the fact of the matter is the laws were not written in favor to help people like me, to help people that have been threatened on a regular basis, because they just aren't able to enforce them that way. So we know that people want these laws to change. And we now have the political will to do this. As I've been trying to wrap my head around what happened at Michigan State here a couple of weeks ago, I, I can't help but think that just as, as a society, there has to be some kind of change in how we view guns or violence. It's just not the state legislature. And I, I wanted to see if, if you're thinking at all along those lines at all, or you know, what other kind of comprehensive approach are, do we need to look at as we're trying to address these kind of random mass shootings? We're not going to stop everything. We know that. But we can make a dent. We have a very unique problem here in the United States. People can say, oh, well, there's mass shootings here and there in other countries. But look at the numbers. If you look at the number of mass, mass shootings to the number of gun deaths overall, to the number of even firearm deaths across the world, it doesn't even come close to what we have here in America. Michigan, we have a strong hunting culture. We don't want to mess with that. The fact of the matter is when people are saying you're just coming to take guns away from from everyday citizens, that's not even remotely close to the truth. Not even remotely close. My family has guns. I don't personally, but lots of people in my family do. I don't care. I know that they are safely secured. I know that they were purchased legally. And I know that my kids aren't going to get their hands on them. But the fact of the matter is Michiganders want these laws to change. People in general across the United States, they want things to change. We are tired of seeing these things happen over and over and over again. And unfortunately, it takes something like what happened at Michigan State for people to realize this is our home. This happened next door. This affected our staff. How many people are work here in Lansing live or are students at Michigan State? Far too many. I mean, the argument, though, is that we have laws on the books mm -hmm. that someone like this McCray guy shouldn't have had guns. And had somebody flagged this to law enforcement or made it an issue, he wouldn't have had guns. So we, the question is more about enforcing the laws that we have as opposed to making new ones. Well, perfect example. In fact, uh, this gentleman, the fact of the matter is there was nothing that stopped him legally from having a firearm right now. However, ERPA laws, extremist protection orders or red flag legislation, that would have allowed the father, somebody in that gentleman's life to contact the police to say, listen, my son is on a path. He is scaring me. He is making vague threats. I'm very worried about him. That would have at least given us the mechanism to temporarily at least take firearms away from him. As far as the fact of what happened with the original charges in the first place, it's also why we have prosecutorial discretion. 
unless you are very familiar with the intimate details of the case, I don't think it's fair for somebody to make a judgment call on what that prosecutor should or shouldn't have done. From what I understand, she did everything that she should have, but I also wasn't privy to the facts at the time. What I do know is that in this very instance before us, had we had red flag legislation in place, there's a distinct chance that if the father had contacted the police, those firearms would have been confiscated. Of these 11 pieces of legislation that you know are being introduced in the coming weeks, which piece do you think, if there is one in specifically, has the potential to make the biggest impact? Probably the red flag laws. Um, that would allow certain individuals, such as a spouse, a family member, a somebody from law enforcement, a treating medical or treating mental health professional to petition the court and say this person poses an immediate threat to themselves or others. That is true preventative legislation. Somebody might be on the cusp and they just need some help and we need to make sure that they have the tools and resources they need to get that help, but also make sure that they're not gonna cause any harm along the way. There's other bills that you're looking at too. I mean, the the conversation right now is about the extreme risk protection orders, safe storage, um, but there's, there's other bills that you're thinking about as well. So, well, the big three are, again, secure storage, um, universal background checks, and, and ERPO. There are some other things that have been in the works for a while. I know some people would like to see an all-out assault weapons ban. Some people would like to see things happen as far as waiting periods. One of the things that I think that we should tackle next personally is ghost guns. You should not be able to 3D print a firearm and be able to use that. And unfortunately, ghost guns and um, people being able to sort of make their own weapons, that's definitely a concern. That's a huge concern. You don't know who has what and when. And I'm not talking about creating a registry, but that creates a whole potential area of problems uh, as far as ghost guns. Kelly Breen, she is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Murders Monday Podcast. Flip that switch and what do you get? You get a... Every room can now be lit with just a Join us now on the podcast is the chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission, Dan Scripps. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very eventful week for you last week with the ice storm and as many as 750,000 Michiganders without power. And the critiques came in fast and furious. And the number one critique being, why is Michigan had so many power outages when you look at our neighboring friends in other states like Indiana, Ohio, they didn't get hit nearly as bad as Michigan. Is it because of our weather or is it because of the infrastructure and the uh, how we deliver electricity to our folks? It's a little of both, to, to be honest. I think ice storms are... Uh, heavily localized that even 20 miles one way or another would make a difference. And as we were tracking it early in the week, it looked like we were going to get hit, but not as hard. Uh, it was going to miss our population centers, but that freeze line dropped just a little further south. And as a result, uh, we saw what we had, which you know was was an unacceptable level of performance. I think that's something that we can all agree on. Uh, but it's also, I, you know, it's not the first time that we've struggled with outages. Um, last year, we had significant outages in in august 2021 was a year of really bad storms i think dte in particular was hit with sort of major storms on average uh, once every five days 
Uh, and we've seen, you know, going back 10 years to the ice storm that uh, hit the Lansing area where we had hundreds of thousands of, of folks without power for, for days on end. This one, though, is worse than that. Um, and I think it's a, a consequence of increasingly severe weather that's happening uh, more frequently as well. Uh, and then a grid where we haven't haven't taken the steps to, to play catch up uh, as fast as we need to. And that's that's really got to be the focus going forward. So whose fault is that? Is that DTE? Is that the transmission company? Is that the state? Who is that? You know, it's I'm less interested in assigning blame than finding solutions. Um, there's there's been real challenges in the the distribution grids. Those are the ones operated by DTE and consumers. I think we've taken some steps in the right direction. They saw 20 percent, both of them, fewer outages last year uh, than the year before and and also uh, improving the duration, how long the outages last. These are important steps. And I think some of the work that we've been doing over the last couple of years is is paying off. But the events of the last week really laid bare that we've got a lot more work to do. Andrew Miniger here joining us. Go ahead, Andrew. Okay, so I have to ask, um, the as far as the amount of money that it would cost to get the uh, power grid up to where it would be acceptable, uh, have you had any number thrown at you? I haven't seen specific numbers on that. Um, I do know that we, you know, we start with sort of the blocking and tackling, getting the lines away from the trees. And so starting in 2019, we approved for DTE that they uh, they could spend accelerated money to bring that tree trim cycle back uh, to a, a more reasonable place. It, it had been sort of more than once every 10 years. And we know that we've got to get to once every seven years at a bare minimum in order to sort of get the outage numbers down and get the restoration um, faster. And so we have started to allow for that in a way that's cost effective for customers. But there's also a fair amount of capital investment, I think, both in terms of enhancing the reliability and, and we know where this is going, you know, as, as more EVs are on the, the road needing places to charge, that we've got to have a grid that's that's capable of handling that. So the, the numbers are significant. I haven't seen a specific one, um, but but they show up in our rate cases, they show up in the five-year distribution plans. And it's something that we've got to figure out how we're going to address the infrastructure needs, but also sort of keeping in mind affordability. We've got rate challenges even today. So uh, immediately after everything went down, uh, DTE released a earnings statement of $1.1 billion. How does that play into those five-year uh, plans that, that you guys uh, approve rate hikes and uh, everything along those lines? Yeah, it wasn't great timing from an optics standpoint. <laughs> I think if they could have delayed that or accelerated, they probably would. When we look at the the rate cases, we we look at what's being proposed, whether those costs are reasonable and prudent. And then under law, we have to allow them the opportunity, not the guarantee, but the opportunity to earn a reasonable rate of return. Now, what's reasonable? Uh, there's, there's a fair amount of debate among the folks who are interveners in our cases. Uh, and what is reasonable and prudent in terms of the overall level of investment um, is debated too. It's one of the reasons that we've, going back a couple of years, tried to ring fence some of the dollars to be spent on reliability, particularly on tree trimming and vegetation management. So they really can only be used for that purpose. We've seen other times where we've included uh, dollars to be spent in rates and they ultimately get spent for something else other than the capital improvements that are, are necessary. And, and the other thing that we, we did, I mean, when you look back over the commission's history, last 10 years, even further back than that, every time we've had a major storm event, we've done a storm order and, and dug in and tried to find opportunities for improvement. 
And yet here we are, uh, we're still not sort of where we need to be, not the level of performance from the distribution grid that people expect and deserve. And so last year, uh, instead of just doing yet another storm order, we initiated a third party audit where we're bringing in a non-utility firm to look at the utilities distribution system and their processes and procedures around that. And it's, it's not a shaming exercise. I wanna know what we don't know today. What are other states doing that might be applicable and relevant to Michigan so that we can start to drive those outage numbers down. What is causing the actual power outages? Is it is it the weight of the ice on like a power line or, or is it trees falling? I mean, what is actually causing all these outages? The, the reason ice storms are so much harder than other storms is, is the weight of the ice. Uh, I've been told that if you look at sort of a, a typical radial line, the, the line that goes from your house to the pole or between one pole and another, when you get a half inch of ice on that, it's the equivalent of hanging a baby grand piano from that. And so you've got just a huge amount of weight on the wire. Sometimes that's enough to bring down the wire all by itself. But when you take that and then you have an ice laden tree that then falls on the wire, often that's when you get snapping poles or you get cross arms that, that break. And those not only are, are harder to restore, uh, they take more time to restore. So that that plays into how long it takes the, the utilities to get the power on. But it really is a weight thing. And that's different than, um, you know, when you get high winds, you get a lot of uh, branches flying in. And we've seen challenges with that. I think that's a place where we're getting better. But if ice is going to be an increasing part of what we see in the winter, as opposed to, to the snow that I think we're more accustomed to, um, that's going to be a challenge for the grid um, unless we take steps to, to correct it. I do have to ask, going back to the audit, is this the first third-party audit that the utilities have had uh, levied against them? I, I think so. Uh, we can't find, it's something that's allowed under statute, um, but it's the first time that I can find that we've actually taken that step to bring in somebody outside of the commission, outside of the utilities, and really open up the books and the um, the operation rooms of the utilities and say, how can we make improvements? And that's that's really what I'm focused on. There's particularly when you're in day five of an outage with 63,000 folks still out of power this morning were, were the numbers that I saw. People are justifiably frustrated and even angry. Um, but it's it's how do you actually solve the problem and what do we how can we learn from other states that are doing it better than Michigan and apply those lessons here? Could the answer be burying the wires? I think that's got to be part of it, honestly. And we have, it, it's a costly thing. Um, so we don't want to just give a blank check, um, particularly where rates are today. But it's got to be, from a strategic point of view, identifying the places where where that improvement can have the, the most uh, impact. And then some of it may be also the, the wires that connect your house to the, the pole outside. A lot of those are still... Um, up in the air. Uh, it's actually the homeowner's responsibility to trim those trees, but a lot of tree companies won't trim around wires. It's an mm -hmm. inherently dangerous thing. Uh, and so going into today, you know, I think 12,000 in the DTE system are those single um, service drops where it's just one customer, um, but it's almost, you know, it's a really difficult thing uh, to, to do. And so I think looking at places where we can strategically and cost-effectively bury versus the um, continued costs of, of maintaining has got to be on the table. Whose responsibility is it to pay for these people who have not had power for days and are now staying in hotels? 
So it's it's ultimately the, the customers. It's um, we do have credits in in Michigan. There are times that utilities will voluntarily voluntarily pay for for hotel costs and that sort of thing. But it's it's not a requirement. Currently, under under the laws that we or the regulations that we've had at the commission for a number of years, it's a twenty five dollar credit if you qualify, uh, and you've got to apply for it. We actually have rules pending with the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules. Um, we should be able to finalize those next month. It's been a, a couple years in the making where those credits would increase to thirty five dollars. They'd be tied to the rate of inflation, so they they would continue to go up even as time goes on. And most importantly, probably make them automatic. And so you don't have to go through the process of figuring out if you're eligible, putting in an application, seeing if the utility agrees with you. They, the utilities have that data. And so under the, the new rules, and again, they'll be finalized next month, these credits would go up, um, would escalate with inflation and would be automatic for customers. It's not gonna take care of a freezer full of food. It's not gonna take care of a, a hotel stay, but it's it's something. So what is the, the threshold for the trigger uh, of that? Uh... It, it depends. Um, we've we've tightened those. We've tightened a lot of the things in, in our service quality rules and technical standards for electric service uh, in terms of the number of outages, the duration of outages. But it is a trigger um, based on sort of the the, the logistical challenges of, of restoring. So on a blue sky day, if you lose your power, I think it's 16 hours. Eight hours is the standard of performance. If you're out for 16 hours, you are eligible for a credit. It escalates in a major storm like we've had uh, this last week. It would take, I think, five days um, to to be out to be eligible for for the credit, and that's a reflection that when you've got more than ten percent of your customers out, and that was true for consumers, for DTE, for Midwest Energy and Communications, it really sort of along that ice belt, uh, you saw significant numbers uh, of customers lose power. Um, that it's just logistically more challenging to get you back hooked up. So it does escalate in terms of the eligibility criteria based on the the um, size of the storm. I'm sure you've seen uh, House Majority Floor Leader Abraham Ayash has particularly been vocal here about DTE. Consumers Energy, DTE Energy, have the most amount of outages for longer periods of time than anywhere in the Midwest, he says. We pay some of the highest rates in the country, and it's just unacceptable. Uh, what's your reaction to that quote to start? I, I agree with the the unacceptable piece, and it's, um, it is it is unacceptable. It's something that we've been... I think working to to address, I think we have made some improvements, but clearly, I mean, the events of the last week, we're not where we need to be. We're not where people expect us to be. And so I think I want to remain solutions oriented. There's a, I think, always a tendency to sort of demand that pound of flesh at moments like these. And, and I get that frustration, but ultimately I want sort of 10 years from now when we're having the same conversation after the next ice storm to be like, why did the grid perform so much better than it did 10 years ago? And that's the goal that I keep focused on. But but is is the is the sort of state of the infrastructure today unacceptable? Absolutely, I agree with that. And as far as a legislative response, can there be? You're a former lawmaker. You know the the extent to which the legislature can do. Uh, they're going to want to hold hearings. They're going to want, as you said, the pound of flesh. But is there anything realistically um, and functionally they can do to help with the situation? I, I think so. I mean, I think the public attention is helpful. I think going in and having to answer questions about it's one thing to do that in the sort of thousand pages of a public service commission uh, rate case or, or distribution plan. It's another thing to do it in front of a, a legislative committee asking the questions that they're getting from their constituents. And so I think that can help. And 
And I think, you know, often it's legislators sort of reflecting what their priorities are as the ultimate policymakers and giving us a framework to, to implement that um, that can help move in in the right direction. I will say that the the challenges around infrastructure, whether it's roads or the grid, are are significant. And if there were easy answers, I think we would have implemented them a while ago. But um, but clearly, we need to do more than we've been doing, and we need to do something different than we've been doing if if we're going to get to a better place. So there's also a move uh, to open up the utilities to a uh, transparency for their uh, lobbying money. Do you think that that would help any? So, I mean, again, it's it's the legislature's call. Right now, they are not allowed to pay for those costs in customer rates. Now, those customer rates then become utility profits that then are eligible to be used for that. But we we focus on regulating the rates and make sure that their lobbying activities aren't actually paid for uh, by their by their customers through through their rates. Um, so if, if the legislature wants to go further, I, I think it's it's a worthy conversation, but um, but it's something where I can say today that the, the concerns about whether customers are paying for the lobbying efforts of, of the investor owned utilities, it's it's not something that's allowed as for recovery in, in rates. Is there anything that the Michigan Public Service Commission, well, I know that there is, but explain to our listeners how the Michigan Public Service Commission could put the squeeze on DT and consumers to address this issue of down lines and power outages more promptly. Sure. So we have service quality rules, technical standards for electric service. These are the ones that, that are, are pending but should be finalized by the end of next month. Um, these will increase the, the um, standards. They will tighten the standards in terms of what is an acceptable level for performance. And if the performance is sort of falling outside of those parameters, I think we can bring them in, we can ask questions, we can do a lot of other things. The second piece is around the um, audit itself. I think one of the challenges here is how do we incorporate best practice from around the country? What is the what are the cost effective solutions to deal with some of the chronic infrastructure challenges that we've seen? And, you know, obviously not just this last week, but over the last several years and, and indeed further back than that. And how do we sort of bring in solutions from from other places? And the third thing is um, really sort of looking at the distribution plans as a whole. So we look at individual investments as part of rate cases that happen basically once a year. But we have really tried to sort of put those in context with requiring the utilities to file five-year distribution plans. What do you see as the long-term investment strategies for, for your infrastructure? How, how are you evaluating trade-offs between uh, you know, upgrading um, the, the, the voltage of your lines for, for both safety and ultimately capacity and, and reliability um, versus the tree trimming that can sort of have a, a lower cost um, today, but, um, but may not sort of ultimately, you know, it's something that you've got to do every, every five years to stay on top of that. But that sort of greater transparency and evaluating utility decisions and then really doing as much as we can to ring fence dollars that are supposed to be spent on reliability to make sure that they are, that they're not being siphoned off for whatever other priority the, the utility has during that moment, but the long-term strategic capital and um, maintenance spending that, that's been identified for those purposes stays on, on addressing the reliability issues. One last thing here before we let you go. Um, stories from the field. What are you hearing here? Because obviously there's a lot of workers from a lot of different states coming in and doing a lot of, of work pulling a lot of nights, uh, sometimes that does get lost in people's frustration and in the numbers. Tell me some stories that you're hearing from the field as workers are trying to hurriedly get as many people back online as soon as possible. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that question because those line workers are heroes. I mean, they're up in bucket trucks in 40 mile an hour winds. I think the cutoff is 45 miles an hour. But if you've been in a bucket truck, even on a calm day, it's not a place you want to be when the, the wind's gusting, particularly when there are live wires around you. So it's it's working sort of around the clock, as you said, putting in overtime, um, you know, spending time. The last storm was right before Christmas. And so spending time that a lot of those folks would rather be with their families like we all would. And and instead, they're out doing the, the service to make sure that the lights are on, the heat's flowing for, for other folks in their communities and across the state. I I can't give enough credit to the, the line workers that are are out there in some of the worst conditions sort of inherently. That's when the storm hits. Um, but doing the work to to get people back on. And and I think you've seen, you know, we've restored hundreds of thousands of folks. We've still got a little bit more to do uh, before we're done with this storm, but uh, but really a, a salute to the line workers and grid operators who are out there making it happen. Dan Scripps, he is the chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission. Thank you so much for taking some time here and talking with us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Dan. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to Adrian Heeman for joining us at the beginning of the podcast with Samantha Schreiber. Representative Kelly Breen, the House Judiciary Committee Chair, joining us with Danielle James. And, of course, Andrew Miniger was here with us when we talked with Dan Scripps, the chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission. We'd like to thank AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. For the entire MERS team, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care.